collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Collective Power. I'm really excited to have with us today my, again, friend and colleague, Jasmine Banks. Good morning, Jasmine. Good morning, Rita. Good morning. So this week, as you all know, so Collective Power focuses on presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month we have, this month we're looking at the child welfare system. Last, our guest was a biological mother who lost her child to foster care. And uh, this week, Jasmine is a foster parent and an adoptive parent who really brings a unique perspective to the child welfare system. So I'm really happy to have you today, Jasmine. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're passionate about before we like get into kind of more heavy stuff? Well, sure. First, let me thank you for inviting me to be here. It's such an honor and a pleasure. I haven't seen you in many years, and you were always a role model and an inspiration to me. Mm-hmm. So amazing that we have this opportunity, so I have to thank you for that. Uh, just a little bit about me. As you mentioned, I'm a, a former foster parent of, of about um, 15 children who ended up having uh, various disabilities, which I wasn't aware about, I wasn't really informed of, and didn't understand. I also am an an adoptive parent of five older sons. So I adopted at ages 10, 11, 12, and 13. I had two adoptions, uh, four the first time and one the second time. And the first adoption, their ages were 10, 11, 12, and 13. And then my second adoption was a young man who was seven at the time. And my sons lived with various... um, challenges, very uh, various disabilities from bipolar to autism to intellectual disabilities to traits of borderline personality disorder and traits of reactive attachment disorder and schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera. My sons have many uh, various diagnoses, and two of my sons live at home now. The eldest is 33, and the youngest is 24. So I've been parenting uh, nearly about 35 years, And we just celebrated our 20 years of adoption on uh, January 22nd. So that's my parenting experience. But other than that, I'm also an aspiring writer. Mm -hmm. I like you. Ah, I can't wait to see that memoir. It's a memoir. It's a very Uh challenging uh, book. It's taken me many years. It seems like over 15 years, closer to 20 years to try to finish it. Still not finished yet. Right there with you. You're right there. You can understand. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? So I've been working on my book for 20 years. Oh, my goodness. It's so challenging to Mm -hmm. to learn the language, to heal through my own personal wounds. Absolutely. So, and I'm very, you asked what I'm passionate about, passionate about. I hope to maybe come back and just give you a synopsis of the book. Is that possible to do that? Oh, yeah. Do you want me to do do that right right now? now? Okay, great. So I'll give the synopsis. I have to read that. So, and it isn't finished. It may change on the actual book, but this is the gist of it. So after surviving the vicious betrayal of several false allegations of child abuse by her adopted children and their social workers and therapists and barely escaping the fate of the other wrongfully convicted, former foster parent turned parent activist Jasmine S. Banks breaks her silence in this tell-all groundbreaking true story of a loyal, dedicated parent's relentless and courageous struggle against the many parenting injustices, unsafe conditions, and unfair treatment in the American social service systems. So I'm still flushing out the synopsis Mm -hmm. and uh, providing supports around that. Actually, I just wanted to acknowledge you for a second because, and in part I know this from my own writing, Mm -hmm. right, 
first of all, writing a book is a challenge, but when you have the commitment to continue for 20 years, mm-hmm. part of that, what I hear, is your commitment to healing, right? Because I, knowing you, right, yes. you haven't said this, but knowing you and knowing, you know, your stand for people to have power and to be able to speak their voice and their truth, mm-hmm. part of what's taking you this amount of time is that you're really committed that that come through in your voice, in your writing voice, right? A sense of of uplifting, inspiration of power, and so on and so forth. So I just acknowledge you for going at it for 20 years and having that level of commitment to your own healing as well. Thank you so much. Because that's a really important part of the process. It is. You're right on target. Uh, You're just, like I said, so so amazing. Healing doesn't happen in a couple years, unfortunately. Although we want it to. It's so true. And that's what that book is really about. And probably yours as well, is how difficult it is to heal. Yes. Because, of course, if, everything, if you're healed, then you can go out and do so much. That's right. But you get wounded in the process. So I try to write about being wounded and how did I get psychologically wounded and what does that mean to me mm-hmm. and uh, what happened to the people that I met, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, you're absolutely correct. I have a question. Sure. Um, so what was the injustice? Was there one specific injustice or one specific moment in time mm-hmm. that really kind of stayed in your mind and carried you through the past 20 years of writing this book? In terms of the injustices. Yeah. yeah. Like, was there one in particular? If I could do two quick, there are two quick ones. Go ahead. I am a foster parent this time. Uh I have not adopted. Almost 20 years ago. Over that. Okay. Because I adopted 20 years ago. I was a foster parent prior to that. I was a young woman. So what almost derailed me, I would have never taken care of my sons had I made a different decision. So my eldest son's social worker lied on me to get revenge against me and punish me because of a conflict she had with my brother. And because I sided with my brother, she couldn't do anything against him, but she certainly could do something against me because I was a foster parent. Mm. So what was amazing, I've always had, you know, there's a thread of angels in my life that you'll see in the book and even now, like just sitting across from you. And I'm always uh, more conscious. See, once you heal, you can notice. You can notice the angels in your life. When you're very wounded, you don't notice that. You don't notice, you don't have the gratitude. So it was actually my foster son's grandmother who told me about the false allegation that was called in. And it's a long story, but it's in the book. But I just wanted to give you an example of the level of betrayal that I didn't know who had called in this false allegation of abuse. But the grandmother calls me to say, you've taken such great care of my grandson, and I'm so grateful to you. And she tells me what happened. So I said, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I said, we've got to Mm -hmm. go to the agency. We've got to let them know what happened. She says, oh, no, Jazz. She says, I can't do it. I wanted to let you know, but I can't. If you call my name, I won't be there to support you, but you know you're in my prayer, et cetera. So I flushed that out. So that took me through a whole series of losing custody of becoming severely traumatized. I didn't know what traumatized meant. I didn't have a knowledge. I didn't understand it. But a whole lot happened at that time. And in that moment, during that period of time, it was a long period of time, many years ago, I said to myself and my family said, of course, do not do this. Do not pursue this. Get out of this. Leave this alone. Hmm. And um, I did not listen, obviously. But of course, sometimes you wonder, you know, but I wouldn't be here sitting across from you had I done that. So see, uh, sometimes it's just our journey, right? It's so true. People can give you all the advice they want. But if it's if it's in your journey, your growth and learning journey to go through it, I tell you. I just want to like emphasize this for a second. So Philly is a really small town. So uh, I've heard so many stories like this of like yes. a social worker allying with someone else who had a personal feud. That's like correct. that's actually a, it's a frequent experience that I've, you're, heard, I've heard variations of that story many times. I started hearing variations of my same stories and mm-hmm. that's just what, what won. Yeah. I kept hearing it in other circles over and over and over and over. I said, wait a minute, excuse me. Wait a minute. You know, you're telling my story. I would meet people I'd never met. I'd be in a room. I'd go to a meeting. I, uh, like I said, I was facilitating trainings uh, for the county, etc. Things that I did for my work. And people would be telling my story, and I'm like, "Wait a minute! This is much bigger than me." I realized that I was just a minuscule—I uh, hate to say—victim and survivor. But so many people have experienced the same thing. So another time, many many years later, I'm an adoptive parent because I thought. 
that by escaping foster care that and become an adopted parent, that I would be escaping a lot of the injustices that go on. That was the, the only time while I was a foster parent, but many other things happened while I was a foster parent. But that was the worst thing that happened, that kind of betrayal and that abuse of power. And then you realize how power and the power differential and how people, because um, they believed her over me and I was just thrown out and dismissed and invalidated, etc. So now here, many years later, here's another one of my other, my adopted sons now, uh, social worker. Uh, my son was, uh, you know, not to out my children because I don't do that in the book. So you'll see how I paint that, how I tell these stories, but not outing my sons. Mm -hmm. They have to have the right to come out and tell their own stories. But I, I'm just using uh, this particular example. So one of my sons needed some serious supports and care and treatment. So the social worker disagreed, and she wanted me to take him back home. And I told him, he needs care. I've been taking him in and out. I, you know, I'm demanding that he get treatment and support. I don't have the skills. I don't have the knowledge. And um, so she refuses. So in terms of revenge, now she gets revenge against me because I refuse to take him back. She then calls in a, child, uh, a false allegation of abuse. Now what was different about this one is that I didn't have access to this son. He was in a facility. So I said, how are you abusing someone you don't even have access to them? And she says, oh, it's, it's mental abuse. It's verbal abuse. I said, so how is it verbal abuse? I haven't cursed. I haven't demeaned. I've just given you because I thought you were the, because she was a social worker, but she was in the role of a therapist. Yeah. I said, I'm sharing with you. You asked me what were the problems. So I shared honestly with you in confidence. And you're saying to me that I'm not supposed to do that. Who am I supposed to go out in the street and tell strangers? And you can't handle it. And so she gets upset. So in terms of retaliation and abuse, then she calls in a false allegation of abuse, which ended up being a, a county um, investigation or interrogation, because it certainly wasn't investigation. It was more like an interrogation and a state. So I went from two because now I'm an adoptive parent. So I had two. But what I use those examples and a couple others that are similar to that is to show how people abuse power. And when they're angry with you and they're trying to control you, the weapon they use is the false allegation of abuse, is the false document on you. So there's a smear campaign about you. And typically you don't understand trauma. You don't understand the language. You don't understand what's happening. You can't even conceive. I write about inconceivables. Almost everything in my book, as I started taking notes and writing and having a paper trail, was about inconceivables. And it reminds me of what Malcolm X said. He said, I can conceive of death but I could not conceive of betrayal. Mm. So I could not conceive of the people whom I relied upon, who were the authorities. I thought they had integrity and that they were, had character and that they would lie and smear me like that. And that's what led me to realize that it was much bigger than me because I started hearing the similar kinds of stories from st complete strangers who would be telling, the details would be so close I would, it would get chills up and down my spine and actually re-traumatize me because I would then have the memories of my own yeah. experiences. So those were just two quick examples, many years apart, similar behaviors. Yeah, and I just want to connect a couple of dots for the listeners. So Luanda, as a biological parent last week, mm -hmm. talked about a similar dynamic mm -hmm. where her child needed treatment. Mm -hmm. She actually asked that the child go back in care. DHS refused... But because she really stood her ground on it, the See? retaliation in that case was removing her other children. Yes. But there's a retaliation that kicked in. So that's fascinating. You're a foster parent, but that's you right. had the exact same experience. Exact so it's same. almost as if, and you're right around abuse of power. So it sounds mm -hmm. like the expectation is you're going to do whatever I say. You better believe it. And not advocate for yourself or the child at this point. You cannot. And that's what I wanted to talk about. Not even as a foster about. parent. No, foster parents. And so that's what I later get into where we could talk about the myths. Because it's really about parenting uh, children with, with disabilities or, or have diff what people in the community would call special needs. I call them various disabilities, exquisite abilities and disabilities. Mm -hmm. Did and you know before you had them either in foster care or adopted them that they had exquisite abilities? I didn't know the language of my threats. I didn't understand mm -hmm. the character of people. Where was the integrity and uh, etc. Also, my sons started getting more diagnoses as time went on. And by me talking to them and trying to get closer to them is when I started learning about all their trauma and all the many homes they had been in 
and institutions they had been in, and no one informed me of that. So often foster parents, uh, this danger zone, so I write about that, how all these risks that we end up um, taking on, we take on the same kinds of risks, the same kind of violent kinds of repercussions as birth parents. And then it dawned on me after I started getting involved, I started becoming curious. And I think the curiosity is what leads you to this, down this path, because you're curious. And I started saying, wait a minute, how am I hearing the same, similar stories? Is it possible that that's how they lost custody of their children, how I lost custody of my children? So people don't know that foster parents get falsely accused. We lose custody of our children and often lose the opportunity to parent another child because if that false allegation is proven founded, they could possibly ruin your entire career. You can't work in anywhere where there are children if you're considered a child abuser. It is like being a sexual offender. You become so stigmatized in the society, in the systems first. Then your friends and neighbors are watching. It must be true. You can get caught up viciously. That's horrific. It is. So basically, if there's a false allegation of abuse that's moved forward, not mm -hmm. only can you no longer be a foster parent, it could go on your record and you could be removed from ever being able to work with children again. Absolutely. Or so in the vicinity of children. You could right? never, of course, be a nurse or a doctor or even sometimes yeah. work with your own family. If they became yeah. ill, you can't become a home health care provider. When you are falsely accused of child abuse, that's why it's so serious. And that's why I asked the God of my understanding to please, may I die trying, finish to write this book. Yeah. to help create understanding about what happens to you, not only psychologically and physically, when you're going through trauma and you don't even know what you're going through, all these symptoms, these physical symptoms of um, headaches and can't sleep and nightmares and starting to develop stress-related disorders and yeah. irritable bowel syndrome and ulcers. And so you start to have these physical symptoms, depression. Yeah. Some people start drinking. Some people start using substances. Then they can get substance addiction. It's so complicated. So yeah. I'm talking specifically now what happens to the caregiver who steps up to the plate to try to care for children whom you've been brainwashed to believe that they are orphaned, that they are abandoned, that they're neglected and abused. Let's talk about that a little oh. bit. So then I realized, oh my goodness, the same things I've, that, that recruited me, that touched my heart, that caused me to give up almost everything. My young adulthood, when I was having fun partying, gave all that up. I've been involved in this for many, many years. The majority of my life has been dedicated to sacrifice and take care of children that I realized were never orphaned. They were forced orphaned. So I write about forced orphans and how you can so stigmatize and marginalize a group of people, which is mostly at-risk parents, then you create that stigma around them, especially if they're founded. So now That's they right. legally cannot take care of a child. And they're not even allowed to take care of their own children. So here you come. You're thinking you're the savior. You're That's thinking right. you're doing good. You have clueless. So I write about how do you recruit someone like me? I do write about the part I play. So what I do is write about the various roles. The part I play was very important. Because if you don't write about the part you play, you don't understand your own weaknesses and your own deficits, then you won't really be able to truly write, a, to me, a good memoir. You must talk about how you were recruited. What were you thinking? What's your mindset? So what were you thinking? You're thinking you're saving these poor children who have mm -hmm. been abused by these horrible human beings. You're believing everything, all the lies that you find out are the same lies that were told about you. I said, oh, my God, I have been complicit in annihilating birth parents. And I said, oh, you know, this revelation, you knocks you off my feet. It's amazing. I, don't, I didn't have panic attacks. Like you had a moment where you said, I've been complicit <laughs> in chastising birth parents. Oh, my God. When did that happen? Tell it, me about that moment. It was a process over time of being constantly being victimized, constantly being terrorized, controlled. I felt... Um, being demonized, being labeled. It's a whole series of things that people were doing. And I started Googling and writing. This is why it took them so many years. That's how you, you know, when uh, Sun Tzu, who wrote about the art of war, when you're in war, the goal is to end up demoralizing the person to the point where there's no bloodshed. So it's invisible. 
So I started studying war. How do you psychologically damage someone? How do you get them immobilized, get them out of the way, and actually suffocate them and smother them so that you can take control and then you create a new narrative? So by the grace of God, and the writing actually saved me because it helped me to process and I started researching and going to meetings and getting on the right mailing list, etc. So then I started realizing, oh my goodness, I, my role, how I was manipulated, how I was brainwashed, contributes to that false notion. And then you start to realize over time, maybe after I adopted, when I was in court, different things you start to realize you do have power. But I couldn't, at first you feel you have no power. When you're dismissed, you're ignored, you're invalidated, you're shunned, then you're lied on. You see, now you're asking too many questions, you're getting out of line. So they got to punish you. They're not strangling me. They're not putting chains around my neck. They're not stabbing me. They're not giving me a black eye because I can come show you that black eye. So they have to psychologically wound me. And then, because I was undereducated, so I write about being undereducated and being recruited, and how you have so many people who don't know the language of their threats. And I didn't know the language of my threats. So even when I would file complaints, I couldn't explain to you what I was talking about. But over time, and being having access, so that's why I write, to give people access to information and understanding. So you have to learn yourself to be clear, concise, and consistent. So for these over 25 years in filing complaints, I've been getting clearer and more consistent so that people can put those dots together. But it's difficult, of course, in an interview. But when you have a book where you can go back to page, you know what I mean? You go back and say, wait a minute, what does she mean by that? And then you give the examples. So I give the examples. I have a paper trail. I talk about the complaints that were shredded. And I talk about how you psychologically demoralize people and take away their voice. And then you marginalize them. So when they're interviews, they're not like you, Rita. This God sent that's sitting across from me that gives me an opportunity to be heard. When I listen to the radio, which I do all the time, because I have beloved stations, and this is going to become one of them, and your station is, they don't interview the person with the lived experience. That's right. The boots on the ground. They don't interview the survivors. Now, part of that they tell me, because I would ask people, where I worked, I had privileges. God just sent me angels in abundance. It's amazing. And I write about all these angels who come to the rescue of this wounded person trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And so you have to learn how to use your voice and you have to learn how to be as clear as paint that picture. Now you got a 50, 50 chance because people are going to say, Oh, you're just making it up. You're lying. It's impossible. Then you tell them, no, I'm writing about inconceivables. That's what I'm writing about. I'm writing about unusual suspects. I felt like I became a detective. Yes, that's actually what I'm here. You took the word out of my mouth. Like, you became an investigator. I know a little bit about how you process information, right? Like, I think of often people call you the resource queen at your work, That is so true. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So I always think of you like a funnel. (laughs) Like, you know, Jasmine has this humongous, like, ear and head out in the world, right? And she just like funnels information for people. I'm really pleased to hear that your memoir is doing that as well. Because it's definitely, I think, bringing information in is like definitely one of your gifts. And what I hear is that you channeled the experience of being abused, demeaned. And you're really saying psychological warfare. Absolutely. And you shifted that into like really, really rigorous investigation and study. That's correct. So that's how you got your power back, basically, yes. by connecting the dots, almost obsessively, right? Because I see you as you're in front of me, like I see you with your hands, like, you know, you're like going one thing or another. It's like, okay, this meeting. that, And I think I knew you those years, right? It was You like knew forward. me in the struggle. Yep. And then I yep. started having more epiphanies after I met you oh, and, I and start meeting more angels. So Beautiful. I'm trying to figure out all this serendipity. So there's a word called zemblanity. Do you know that word? No. Z-E-M as in Mary, B-L-A-N, N as in no, T-Y. Tell me about so that. zemblanity is the opposite of serendipity. So serendipity is when, of course, you're on your way to something and um, you just, the road's blocked like this road is, and you just happen to make another turn somewhere. And all of a sudden you look up, you see this wonderful store. And you're curious, you go in, and you find now, you just happen to look on the rack and find this 
wonderful coat that's been discounted one third the price that you've been looking for for five years. That's serendipity. Mm-hmm. These amazing, so all these angels that were coming to my life, I was like, what in the world? I feel like I'm in the middle of a war and I'm, I'm down, I'm about to give up and these angels would come. But then what started happening, I wanted to know, well, what's the opposite of that? Because most of my parenting experience has been Zimblanities. I'm just out here, naive. I was told I have naive trust. And, and I'm a codependent addict. I had to learn some language. <laughs> a people pleaser and all that. I started learning all this oh, language God. by meeting all these wonderful yeah. recovering people. I'm smiling because I see myself in your story in yeah. many ways, right? Especially meeting... the naivete. Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. And you don't know now. In a second, I'll, I'll share with you what got me writing the book. But go ahead. I want to hear the end of the story you. first. Oh, yeah. So Zimblanity, it's the opposite of serendipity. Mm-hmm. So I kept having, I'm on my way naive, and it's like having those, uh, what do they call the IEDs, yeah. the intermittent explosive devices. You're just walking, skipping down the street, and boom, a bomb happens. And you're like, mm. wait a minute. Nobody warned me about that bomb. What's going on? So you're wounded. So somehow you get up. You have all these angels. Thank God for the love of my family, my mother and family, my husband. You know, all that I am that is good in this world is because of my mother, Labor Banks. And so... The resilience, you know, once you learn about resilience, you learn about how angels can impact you, like how you're inspiring me now. It set me on a whole different trail. So Zimplanet and my husband, Sid, and my son, Shaq, and we're all coming. I tell people, get ready, because we're coming out there to tell the stories. But so Zimplanet. We're coming. I'm right there with with you. Oh, my God. Such an. I can see the book tour, the joint book tour. Like joint book tours, baby. On the panels and all all across the country. We're going to do it. So I've been afraid to do it. But. Zimplanity is the opposite of serendipity. So, but thank God, more serendipity, more resilience happened for me, more angels. And that helped me to heal. And then by me continuing to write, and I'll tell you later how I started writing, because that was an intention. I was never a writer. I was never a good student. Uh, It's been difficult for me to process information. My vocabulary was very poor. I couldn't conjugate a verb. So all these... I couldn't believe that now listening to you now. Tell me about miracles. I just want to uplift this for a second, right? And just to emphasize, like, the reason why I keep on, like, feeding back some of the things you're saying is not because you're not clear. You're super clear. Sure. Um, Just you bring in a lot of information, and I just, like, want our listeners sometimes to pause on certain things. That's why I'm kind of repeating some things back. So what I hear is that you were basically connecting the dots I love that I learned a new word today on all the Zimblanities in your life. Right? Yes. And to each Zimblanity, there were lots of serendipities and angels that would pull you like you get in the hole and then all these angels would pull you out and then there'd be another one. And so you started connecting the dots on the Zimblanities. You were probably connecting the dots on the serendipities, too. Yes. But you started looking for patterns in the different Zimblanities. And that's what had you become this investigative it's as if you became an investigative journalist of your own life. Like, really, that's what this book is. It is. And you're bullseye. Just brilliant. Yeah. Exactly. You hit it. That's why I said you have to talk about the part you played. Let me tell you what I did. Mm-hmm. I did the right thing in the wrong way for the wrong people in the wrong systems at the wrong time. And I wanted to know, how is it that you can do the right thing would be so wrong. I was so wrong. So that humiliated me and demoralized me on top of all the challenges because I was so wrong. But yet I did the right thing. All children deserve to be loved and cared for and supported. That's my core value, my core principle. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Zimblanity that had me start writing my book. Yes was the naive, right? The naivete, oh my God, right? (laughs) So I was a PhD student at Temple, PhD in African-American studies. It was like first year in my PhD program. It was my first evaluation job. That's why I became a program evaluator. And I was the evaluator of a welfare-to-work program that promised parents to reunite with their children. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about it is that It was funded by the Department of Labor. And I can't cuss on air. The assumption of the program was if we just get these women jobs, everything will be fine. 
right? Like the system will disappear from their lives if they get a job and they get their life together. It's like the first time that in a focus group, I heard stories very similar to yours, but mm -hmm. from a biological parent's perspective instead yes. of a foster parent's perspective. What I promised is that I was going to use that knowledge to shift the system. And I don't know how the hell did I think I could do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the naivete of the 20-something-year-old, right? I think I was 26 at the time. And I truly believed that if you had given me DHS and just like put me <laughs> oh, yes. at the reins, I would fix that, you know? Yes. So I'm calling it as a blanity because although the bomb didn't really, no one really put the bomb on me. I put it on myself for sure. Okay. But I feel like the last 25 years, mm -hmm. 20 years since then have been like, as you were saying, like investigating. Yes. Becoming an investigative journalist but also me being in the inquiry of how the hell am I going to keep that promise? Wow. <laughs> amazing. I love that I have a new word for that moment because it was such a pivotal moment that's for a, me. That's amazing. Just a, a wonderful. And I can't wait to read your book. Oh, can't wait for you to read for it. For us to tour together and all, and all those other folks oh, that they yeah. were writing. Absolutely. Can I share one other word Go. with you? Go. I just found this word. One of the things you asked about passions is finding words. Like Zimblanity. When I yeah. found that, I was like, oh, yes, now uh -huh. I have some, some meaning explanation because I certainly was trying to search for meaning. And I believe I'm going to pronounce it correctly. And uh, I just found it, and I'm not 100% sure I am pronouncing it or spelling it correctly. But I believe it's called iatrogenic harm. And I'm going to spell that to my understanding. So please forgive me if, if it's incorrect. Mm -hmm. I just learned, heard this word last week. It's I-A-T, Ia. I-A-T-R-O. So that's I-A-T-R-O-G-E-N-I-C. Iatrogenic harm, if I understand it correctly. As I said, I may have incorrect spelling. I will have it the next time. It's so new for me. I haven't totally internalized it yet, but I've internalized the meaning of the word. The meaning is when you get harmed un unintendedly. Mm -hmm. For example, it's very popular in the medical field. People go in for surgery, they come out paralyzed. They went in uh, for cancer treatment, now they're infertile. Now they have uh, hair loss. Now they're impotent, et cetera, et cetera. So iatrogenic harm is what I experience. So I've been praying now. Now, you remember, I'm still writing, trying to finish this book. I said, I need the right word. What happens when you go in to try to do something good? It's well-intentioned, and you get seriously harmed. But, of course, the psychological harm, right? There's no bloodshed. Mm -hmm. I can't show you the marks. That's right. But if you go see my insides, I can show you that. I can show you some physical stuff. That's right. And um, you can tell when people are traumatized. So that's what I experienced, and that's what I write about now. See, I was writing about it, but I didn't have the language of it. So iatrogenic harm is what Lawanda and me and all these other families have experienced, but they don't have the language to describe it. That's why you have to be in pursuit of language so that you can understand the language so that you can speak their language. So now when I'm meeting with them and they say, oh, what are you talking about? You know, try to dismiss me again and invalidate and undermine me and shun me. I say, no, I experienced iatrogenic harm. And then I break it down with the research. So I use the real life examples that I experienced, but I use the language from the community, uh, everyday language. And then in the book, I use their language, the jargon to introduce you to the kinds of psychological harm that happens. Also in the child welfare and the social services feels because they're connected. And that's horrible, too. That was horrifying. Yeah. What put you on your healing journey? The healing journey, I think, would say writing. I had never written. Poor student, learning challenges, suffered and struggled the whole way through school. College dropout, couldn't handle it wasn't prepared, come from the inner city ghetto schools where you're underprepared, grew up in abject poverty, but plenty of love. The love is what made me so resilient. I see that That's when right. I learned about resilient. That's right. So you don't have money. My parents are, I call them the survivors of Jim Crow. They're Jim Crow children mm. of segregation, have their own severe trauma. I'm in traumatized neighborhoods, and people are untreated and unsupported. So you grew up in that environment. You know, I have my own uh, childhood trauma. I'm a survivor of multiple molestation. I'm a survivor of rape, teenage date rape. 
So I didn't realize how that kind of trauma impacts your life, even though I didn't internalize that and I didn't have anger or rage towards those folks. I realized they were very sick to do that to very, very young children. So the path, though, is um, I started to write because I kept meeting people who were out of character. And I said, something is wrong. And it's a long story in terms of how I originally started on this path of writing. But I would hear, you know how you watch Oprah and watch all these other wonderful people, and they always say, oh, writing is so cathartic and so healing. And I didn't know what they were talking about. I never wrote the whole time I was in school. So, and then I never wrote the early years of foster care when I was being victimized. And I always wished I had written and kept a record of those. Mm-hmm. I have the wounds, but not the records. So once I started writing, because people kept saying they didn't say things they said, that's how I actually started writing. But then I started learning that after you write, you start can organize. So yes, I'm crying and boohooing every single day of my life, nightmares and flashbacks and PTSD and all these symptoms I have no clue about. So the writing itself validates you because now you look at, you start organizing your writing, you start looking at the paper trails you have developed, and then you start to realize long after you start doing that, that not only are you getting better, you're getting organized. You're getting clear. You're seeing patterns. I start to see tremendous patterns. Yeah. And let me tell you one quick pattern. This is, I just saw this maybe because of the football season. There was an interview. Give her the credit. because She gave a phenomenal interview. Cynthia Marshall. She's the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. So she was talking about character. So anytime I'm watching an interview, you start talking about character and integrity get hypervigilant around that. (laughs) So she uses this acronym, which I'm going to throw out, CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T. So the C is for character, right? That's your moral qualities of the organizational culture or your individual qualities. And since the people that I knew abused their power and autonomy and discretion and lied on people, shamed people, and did horrendous things so they didn't have character. Now R, so you got the C, you got the R, is respect. That is how we regard each other, how we treat people, and you know, how we show our feelings towards each other, either traditionally in the culture or just individually. And the people I'm talking about had contempt for at-risk parents like me. They recruited me and had contempt for me, I guess, because I got out of line. So they didn't have respect. Now, she talked about authenticity and the importance of that at her organization. And so the A is for authenticity. That is being true to yourself, your convictions, your reputation. Is very important. Your image, you live, you know, your word is your bond. I was talking about people and writing about people who were false, who were foul and cruel and angry and misplaced anger and lived double lives. So they didn't have authenticity. Now, here's the F for fairness. Fairness is transparency. Uh, How do you treat people justly? You're caring, you're committed to equity and making sure that there's equal recognition. Uh, for uh, giving people a seat at the table, having a voice without repercussion, things like that. So I was meeting people, of course, who didn't tell the truth, who were closed-minded, who were taking advantage of people, falsely blaming others for their leadership mistakes, etc. And so now here's the T that she mentioned, which was the complete opposite of my experience. She talked about teamwork. So teamwork is what? The willingness to work together to achieve a common goal. Having friendly relationships like you and I have, Rita, not backstabbing each other and throwing each other under the bus. If you want an effective team, you have to be respectful of your team. So here I work with people who are accepting false credit. They're accepting all the credit, doing the least amount of work. Foster parents doing most of the work. They lack family experts who have the lived experience. We're content experts. We're not invited to the table. There's no collaboration with us. There's cronyism, I write about that, and their friends, you know, etc. So the craft is what I wanted to introduce to the conversation. They lacked it. So how do we use our collective power to bring forth craft? You get engaged and get curious. If you think people aren't telling the truth, prove them wrong. That's what I tell people. If I'm not telling you the truth, you know, as um, one of my mentors says, rescue me if I'm wrong. So you have to educate yourself about the system. And the collaborating systems, because it's not alone. There's a lot of collaboration going on. So you've got to read our stories and interview us like you're doing. You have to talk to us. You have to listen, though, first. If you're very closed-minded and you assume anyone who comes to you 
and says anything that's controversial is not true, then you've shut down the process. So if you're not open-minded and listen to the injustices, you will never get to the understanding. You have to stop believing everything you read like I did. Don't do what I did. Investigate. Check it out. Get on the mailing list. Find out. Go to some of the meetings like I started doing. You know, go to these meetings. Start reading those research reports. Start seeing the contradictions. See, one, see I started first seeing the contradictions got me very curious. You've got to unite with other parents, survivors, and family advocates like you. We've got to gather and organize and strategize and create our own reports and present at our own conferences and meet with the legislators, help educate them, and the caring media. It's not many of them because a lot of them, in my experience, have been biased, have not been objective, and come with some of the most negative, deficit-based examples. That means you're not open-minded and listening. And also, are you doing your homework? Because if you've gone where I've gone, you would have more facts, more information. And also, then after we do all of that, we've got to make demands of the system. Like Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. That's right. So you've got to do that. It's just so much. I have thoughts, and I can go on. See, when you're writing, but you can overwhelm people. I know. <laughs> this has so much to contribute. You're so wise and have done so much diligent thinking around this that you have so much to contribute. It's just overflowing. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I'm so happy you're writing because you definitely have, like, I can see the book. Right? I can see it in, and hear blessing. it in your words. What advice would you give other foster parents? Well, the advice mm -hmm. for other foster parents is, as I said, don't do what I did. Do the opposite. Say more. And doing the opposite is really reading about the cons of foster parenting. See, I only heard the pros, mm. one side. Yeah, the commercials, right? Oh, my gosh. Mm, yeah. I was the brainwashed. I was the perfect victim. I write about being a perfect victim. Don't be a perfect victim. Make sure that you have done your due diligence. Do your homework. Understand. See, if you don't understand the plight and the barriers. You've got to understand the barriers. My book has hundreds of barriers. Those emblanities, I call them barriers. When I found that word, I said, oh, that's my barriers. That's a, just another word. So you have to understand that. You have to understand disability, too. What does that mean? What are the limitations and the strengths of disability? And uh, why are so many children institutionalized? You have to understand, too, yourself. As Imhotep, the father of uh, modern medicine, uh, the father of the world, who brought medicine to the world, who taught Socrates. People don't know Imhotep did, the first African to teach Socrates and all of the Greek philosophers. He said, know thyself. If you know yourself and you start studying yourself like you would study a book or study a test, because you need to know what are your weaknesses? How can you be manipulated like I was? What are your triggers? What triggers you? If you see the chocolate, does that trigger you to eat it? I write about the brilliance in this writing and the propaganda. I just wanted to highlight something that's been really, really clicking in our conversation. So Sandy Bloom, who created the Sanctuary Model. Yes, you know I had an opportunity right? to meet her. Oh, she, I did She too. gave me her book. She's actually our neighbor. She lives in Chestnut Hill. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, she's not that far. And she's really active in Philly and has been really active and um, played a pivotal role in Philly, wanting to declare itself a trauma-informed city. I don't know how we're going to get there, but... But I like that we're declaring it. But one of the things she says in Restoring Sanctuary is that the trauma triangle, which is victim, per perpetrator, rescuer, yes. right? As long as we are stuck one of those three roles, trauma's driving. Yes. Trauma's in the driver's seat. And part of what I hear you saying, and honestly, I think it's jumping out to me because it's part of my own story. When I was talking about that promise I made and in the savior role yes right it took me 20 years to do my own healing work to like be able to see okay rita you trying to rescue our people all the time makes you the perfect victim <laughs> so part of knowing thyself is knowing in our own trauma story which role we get stuck in that's right, right. so i had been trying to save people my whole life and of course I was actually trying to save me my whole life because I thought I was broken. Okay. Right? So underneath the trying to save other people was actually a belief 
that I needed saving. Because oh. I thought I was broken, so then I like had to fix everybody else. That's powerful. Right? And so know thyself, mm-hmm. like part of what the healing process is, is knowing. And, and I think most people in the helping professions are in that role. Right. So when you were talking about like even a social worker's reaction or so on and so forth, mm-hmm. like oftentimes they're in that savior role. Yes. Now you experience them in the perpetrator role because you're That's in the victim correct. role. That's right? correct. But their experience is that they're in the savior role. That's right. And healing doesn't mean just shifting role. Like it doesn't mean that from a victim you become a savior, although that's often what we do. Like we try to break the pattern by just switching roles. It means actually breaking the triangle altogether and being able to be a full human being that can play other roles. And maybe sometimes we'll be a victim, but we are full human beings that can take on multiple roles and not just be locked in these three roles. Absolutely. So thank you for bringing that forth. I think that's thank really you. an important part of the healing process is to like, you know, know which role you get driven to. Absolutely. So now when you're tempted to save someone, you go, wait, pause, right, breathe, take a step back. That's right. And that's so powerful that you shared that. Thank you. Uh, for one, the fact that you shared that you had the consciousness of knowing that you needed to be healed. I didn't have that consciousness. Oh, I didn't have it either. Oh. For Sandra Bloom. Similar to you, oh similar to you as I was writing, yes. like I discovered the Yes, trauma, you learned it, it right? yourself. You know, so I'm a sexual trauma survivor, okay. and I didn't know that before I started writing the book. Me either. But every single mother in the book told me their experiences of being serially raped as youth. Oh, my goodness. Um, actually, five out of the six were serially raped as youth. My goodness. And then one, it was an incest survivor. Yes. So... The process of interviewing and transcribing and processing and <laughs> reading and rereading, my trauma got triggered. That's and right. And then I had to look my own healing in the face. My goodness. So that's like... How powerful. <laughs> so I didn't know the healing journey before I was doing the Zimbland yes, videos all over the exactly. place. I promised that I could change stuff. I had no clue what I was going to do with. That is so um, powerful. But then, as you were saying, like things like this then put us on a journey. Yes. Right. And sometimes you have to make the absurd claims like I did 20 years ago. Right. Or you have to kind of, as you were saying, investigate intensely to then be able to get on that journey of healing. Cause, or you were saying being the perfect victim. Oh, my right? goodness. And yes. Doing the right thing for the wrong people at the wrong time for the wrong reason. That's correct. Part of what I'm really passionate about is. All of our systems really punish people for being human. Yes. Right? It's like as soon as you do anything wrong, it's a gotcha. That's right. And if you're a child or a parent, it happens in different ways Mm -hmm. through different systems. Right? Like as a child, it happens in the juvenile justice and mental health. That's right. But there's this gotcha that the system does. And that gotcha is particularly designed for people of color. Like white people get trapped in it too. That's right. Generally, it's poor white folk, so class traps them That's in. Right. But there's this gotcha. It's definitely and gotcha. what I'm really passionate about mm-hmm. is would it be like to create a system mm-hmm. where we account for the fact that often it's the gotcha moments, mm-hmm. right? It's the mistakes that put us on our learning journey. Mm-hmm. You can't remove that from humans. No, you can't because they won't learn. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like that's the nature of life. Absolutely. And learning and transforming is the nature of life. And you can't remove the error that a person made at 20 if that's their life journey. It's true. You need to make those mistakes so you can learn. Yes. But often some people, the only mistake they made was being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. With the wrong people. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole nother piece. Yep. I have to add this real quick because you brought her into the conversations, Dr. Sandra Bloom. The first person who taught me about trauma was Dr. Sandra Bloom. When I was in the room, I had the privilege to have access to her because I had a training at where I was working, and they allowed me to go spend the week with her. And when I was listening to her, I wanted to cry through the entire thing because she was giving me all the language for all the experiences. And I said, oh, my God. And my coworkers were saying, what's wrong, Jazz? I said, for the first time in my life, I have language to describe what I've been going through. And it was just amazing. So I just wanted to shout out to her. And you've spoken to that a lot. 
today, the importance of learning language to describe our experiences. Like yes. that's healing yes. and empowering because that's what you need. You need to feel empowered. So yeah. you have the energy to, you know, being pushed into your purpose once you find out what your purpose yeah. is. So, yes. Jasmine, tell us how people can get in touch with you. Can they email they you can if, email they, me. if they want to be on your mailing list? Absolutely. Or... Please do, because I okay. will send you some great information in time. I'm still working yep. on it. And I have some resources I'll share in the meantime. But it's Jasmine Banks. So it's one word. J-A-Z as in zebra. M-I-N Banks. So that's B-A-N-K-S at Comcast.net. So Jasmine Banks at Comcast.net. All one word. J-A-Z as in zebra. M-I-N, no E, people add the E, no E, Jasmine Banks, all one word, B-A-N-K-S at Comcast.net. And soon I'll have my number, my social media, and I even have some hashtags for us to stay in touch. This interview is such a serendipitous for me because it's prior to me finishing the book. But boy, have you been an inspiration, and I'm so grateful to to have reconnected with you, for you to have outreached to me the angel who come. See, this is what I'm talking about. You're the perfect example of what continues to happen to me. And we can, later we'll tell our story. We'll have to tell our story when we're on a panel. How yeah. it was an old email address that I never even used. And I happened to look at it. I saw you reaching out to me. Yeah. Tell me that's not serendipity. Jasmine, I really thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.